Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome aboard, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. We're going to be talking about raising the dead tonight, but it's not really what you think. Sorry to disappoint, we're not talking about conjuring up the souls of the dead or cadavers rising up out of the grave. We're actually going to talk about the ancient Egyptians and something called spiritual alchemy, a metaphorical raising of the dead, if you will. Ancient temple cultures such as the Egyptians recognized the body as a vessel in which the soul is trapped from its divinity. And although the person lives and breathes, their spirit is anesthetized, so their view of the world is narrowed to what can only be touched by the five senses, and such people thus were considered to be dead. So sit back and get ready to learn all about the ancient Egyptians and the art of raising the dead. Freddie Silva is one of the world's leading researchers of ancient systems of knowledge and the interaction between temples and consciousness. He's also a best-selling author and filmmaker. He lectures internationally with keynote presentations at the International Science and Consciousness Conference and the International Society for the Study of Subtle Energy and Energy Medicine, in addition to appearances on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, BBC, video documentaries, and radio shows. He's described by the CEO of Universal Light Expo as perhaps the best metaphysical speaker in the world right now. Freddie Silva, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Uh, pretty good, Richard. And uh, we were just uh, talking off the air. I was asking you, uh, you know, what it's like down there in Maine, where you reside, of course, supposedly. I mean, you're in the path of, of Hurricane Sandy, and you say what? It's, it's dead quiet. Absolutely dead quiet. I mean, it's so still, you can't hear anything. It's the water. I mean, you can see reflections off the water. It's, it's so beautiful. And, uh, well, you know, these things have a way of just manifesting off to, to the sea, so that would be nice, because I just armor-rolled the car. <laughs> God forfend anything should happen to the... Yes, isn't that always the way? You armor-roll, yeah, no. and then here comes a hurricane. Yeah, I'm very right. proud of my Mini Cooper. It's a very small car. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Mini. Gotta love the Mini. Uh, it is, uh, of course, the uh, we're, we're approach, fast approaching Halloween, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I put the, the notice up on my webpage that we would be, we would be discussing... Uh, the art of raising the dead, and of course that started the chats and the emails, and oh, we're going to talk about zombies. No, 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 not so fast. <laughs> this is not about zombie worshippers. Uh, this is about the Egyptians and spiritual alchemy. Let's, uh, and, and what they meant, we'll, we'll get into this, what they meant by raising the dead, but let's start with some definitions. Alchemy. We, we hear the word, uh, in, in alchemy, chemistry. Now, is there a relationship between the alchemy of the ancients, and modern-day chemistry. In a matter of speaking, I mean, what the Egyptians were always into was double entendres and metaphors. What you saw wasn't necessarily what you got. Uh, it was almost like the Christian ethos of uh, Christ talking parables. And the ordinary people, basically, or the ones who were without, they said, they would hear parables and interesting stories, but the ones who were within, suggesting that they were part of a, some kind of a, a group who was, you know, privy to something, the stories meant something else. And uh, when you start looking at how the, uh, all of these stories eventually end up in ancient Egypt, it seems that the Egyptians were doing exactly the same thing. You look at the origin of alchemy and where it all comes from, and you follow the trail through the Greeks who were studying in uh, the library in Alexandria. And, uh, you know, essentially they, uh, they uh, borrowed everything from the Egyptians and they gave them credit, of course. Um, if you look at the origins of the name of Egypt, uh, the Arabic name is Alchem, 
and that's where the uh, origin of the word alchemy eventually comes from. So in a way, when you're studying alchemy, you're studying matter that comes from Egypt. And uh, what the Egyptians originally were into in terms of the alchemy wasn't necessarily a nuts and bolts uh, alchemy as we would know in the Middle Ages where you turn metal into gold and that kind of thing. Uh, if you're looking at, looking at it from their perspective in the Egyptian culture, it was about a figurative transformation. And it was all to do with uh, the ancient mysteries where people who basically had uh, the ability to learn the mysteries and the, what they called the knowledge, they would somehow be transformed by this knowledge into a, a sort of a self-empowerment, and they would slowly stop uh, totally associating with their animal nature, and they would be transformed into gold. So the metaphor is quite obvious. It's, it's nothing to do with the, uh, the transfiguration of, of metals, but more to do with the transfiguration of the individual. So that they basically come to shine as a star, they would say. Um, people would basically go from associating with uh, just ordinary uh, objects, everyday life, material possessions, and they would be transfigured into light beings. Uh, essentially, they would learn the alchemy of the of the gods, they called it. So it was really to do with the spiritual transfiguration of the individual while they were still alive. They wanted people to, to wake up from this strange sleep that we continue to be in today, sort of stumbling through life, not really conscious and or living in the moment. Is that is that basically it? Oh, pretty much so. And if you look at a lot of the um, the secrets that the Egyptians had, and they've carved a lot of this understanding on their uh, on their walls of their temples. And uh, even when the the Templars were digging below the temples of Jerusalem, and they found the scrolls that the Essene culture had written, and also the Dead Sea Scrolls that they were found in Qumran in 1947. Uh, you look at all of these connections, and they seem to point to the same principle that uh, the, uh, there was a certain group of people who knew something uh, that was very special to the point where it was always considered a sort of a secret club. And the only thing that they were hiding was uh, information. They had some kind of information whereby you'd, uh, the initiate or the candidate would be allowed into an inner group after a year of observation. Uh, in other words, they would keep an eye on you and they'd make sure that you were someone who was reliable, trustworthy. So after you basically uh, uh, made sure that you proved yourself, then you'd be asked to, in, uh, uh, you'd be invited to join an inner group whereby the parables were no longer parables. They would explain to you what these stories were, and that's how you started your uh, sometimes up to 10 years initiation into these deeper mysteries of what we would describe today as esoteric knowledge. And uh, that's what basically uh, separated the, uh, the living, people who basically uh, were totally alive and awake, from those that they described as the walking dead. Uh, even the Egyptians recognized that this, the, uh, the, the body that we have and we're born with is basically a vessel and uh, that vessel uh, is essentially a carrier of a soul, and the soul is immortal. And for them, they recognize that once you're trapped in the body, that uh, you are basically dead. They call them the walking dead. So that's where the comparison to the zombies comes in. Uh, but they basically were people who were just totally unaware. They seemed to think that uh, it, uh, life was basically getting up at morning, going to sleep at night, uh, having your woman or your man, and uh, toiling in the fields and uh, do, eating, drinking, and uh, working, sometimes killing. And that was all. You just died and went back to the earth. But uh, as far as they were concerned, they seemed to be uh, tapping into something different. Uh, they seemed to have some kind of an antidote. And their antidote was to get you through this uh, torturous process of uh, initiation over the course of many years to get you to understand and to see that you can have an, a, a deeper understanding of the mysteries of the universe, uh, how uh, the stars work, how nature functions, 
And after that, they took it a stage further where they would take you into uh, initiation chambers. Uh, usually they were uh, below the, the temples. There's still quite a lot of those uh, around in Egypt. And uh, there you'd have a sort of a shamanic experience whereby you'd uh, sort of ingest a certain drug. And uh, they would basically put you in this sarcophagus-type structure. And during the course of the night, uh, after a bit of training, you would be able to guide your soul to go into all kinds of strange uh, environments. And hopefully, by the time the morning sun rose, uh, you would be awoken, and then uh, you'd be guided out of the temple. You would greet the morning star, and you would uh, said to be risen from the dead, because apparently you would come back with certain insights as to how the universe really works. And that's what gave them self-empowerment to suddenly realize that they don't have to be beholden. It sounds like they were being, they were being instructed on how to astral travel. Is, is that accurate? Oh, that's pretty accurate, yes. I mean, it's just like, uh, some people describe having a shamanic journey in the jungle with ayahuasca. Uh, it's a very controlled way of allowing the soul to escape the body for uh, a few hours. And, uh, if you, if you're prepared, how to uh, undertake that journey. You don't just sort of disappear and go off with, with the fairies. You actually set yourself certain parameters before you go into this sort of deep sleep, whereby you do a sort of a, a guided meditation. And uh, because you are so focused on what it is you're asking uh, of the spirit world, then hopefully you are trained to come back with specific answers to specific questions. And that was very uh, useful because you could solve all kinds of problems and you could literally have a communication uh, with, uh, I would say, the spirit world. Now, the, we hear so often uh, about the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Uh, what, I mean, how does that book sort of go along with what these mystery schools were teaching? And, or, were they talking about the same thing in, the, in, in, in the, uh, the, the ancient Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead? Yeah, it was pretty much the resurrection rituals were pretty much part of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Uh, it's actually a mistranslation. The Egyptian Book of the Dead was uh, uh, sort of called that during the Victorian era because the Victorians were obsessed with uh, just looking at the very linear aspect of Egyptian culture. And for them, it was all about death, about embalming. So that's why they called it that. Uh, it's now been rewritten uh, and renamed in light of new understanding as the Book of Coming Forth by Light. Now, that puts a completely different spin on it, uh, because when you look at it from that point of view, it means that you're actually being taught something in order to awaken to some kind of light, some kind of enlightenment. So it's, uh, it wasn't so much the physical death that the Egyptians were so concerned about, at least not originally anyway. Uh, I think eventually, like every major culture, they would eventually lose the plot, and then they would do things without really understanding what they were doing, just like we all do today. But originally, the book of coming forth by light was an instruction of, of how to actually experience the resurrection while you were still alive. And even the early uh, Jerusalem church of the early Christian movement, which, are, which was a very Gnostic uh, movement, which is all based on Egyptian principles, uh, they too also understood that principle, that it was all to do about receiving resurrection while you are still alive. All right, Freddie, so hold on. We'll uh, take a time out when we come back. Uh, I want to get uh, further into these mystery schools and, and uh, these illumined ones. I'm, I'm wondering whether... Uh, this might be the source of, of uh, the Freemasonry and uh, the Illuminati and, and so forth. We have a certain perception of the Illuminati, but perhaps we were misguided. Freddie Silva will set us straight as we continue to discuss the legacy of Egypt, spiritual alchemy, and the art of raising the dead. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? 
Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Freddie Silva, The Legacy of Egypt and the Art of Raising the Dead. We're not talking zombies. We're talking about raising a consciousness and uh, becoming an illumined one, I suppose, would be a fair way to describe it, uh, Freddie. But uh, there's that word, illumined, illuminati. Uh, are we talking about the same thing when we talk about this mystery school and what would later become... Uh, you know the the, the Bavarian illuminists, uh, the illuminists, uh, and the Illuminati. Is it the same uh, origin? Originally, yes. Yeah, it's just like Freemasonry. I mean, it, the origins of Freemasonry can now be very accurately uh, traced back to the uh, initiatory processes of uh, Pharaoh. Uh, I believe he lived about 1500 BC, called Secondary Tao. Uh, and uh, the authors of the Hiram Key uh, did some very good research on bringing that out because they, as Freemasons, wanted to understand why they were doing these uh, very uh, unusual rituals, which no one seemed to explain why they did this. And uh, it was the third degree of Freemasonry where you are uh, figuratively risen from the dead, from a grave, that suddenly started their whole ball rolling. And the same thing also happened to me when I was conducting the research for my uh, current book on the, on the Templars. The, uh, I kept coming across all of these references to the initiates who kept talking about how I want to uh, come into the joys of paradise. And I thought, what, what are they talking about? Uh, uh, it seems so incongruous with the understanding of Templars, but once you sort of link the Templars as being the uh, uh, precursors to Freemasonry, because all of their systems of initiation were identical, uh, then it was just a matter of finding out well, where the Templars get this idea from about suddenly being indoctrinated into the joys of paradise. It seems to me that the people who are trying to join were experiencing some kind of illumination of some spiritual kind. Uh, and it pretty much was. Uh, once you start looking at how the, uh, the Masons also uh, took their practices all the way back to this Egyptian pharaoh and what was happening in this guy's court, uh, then it becomes very obvious uh, that uh, there was a system whereby the pharaoh would be uh, spiritualized. He would undergo a ritualistic uh, death where he was basically indoctrinated into the mysteries. He'd be put into a underground chamber or a sarcophagus, and then in the morning he would be risen, whereby he'd come totally uh, to the other total understanding of how everything works and he would be shine as a bright star and all of these processes are now found in the uh, degrees of, of uh, speculative freemasonry because just like the uh, early illuminati there are different branches of freemasonry which some people use it for right action and some for not and uh, i have my own fair share of friends of mine who are uh, freemasons who will tell me that uh, there are obviously certain branches of uh, this uh, very wonderful sect who do things in the very old tradition uh, for very spiritual reasons. Um, but then there are also those who, of course, use it for rather nefarious purposes. It's, it's just energy. It's, uh, it's how you use the information, and the energy will direct the actual, uh, you know, send the direction into either right action or wrong action. So just like you have the Skull and Bone Society uh, in Yale, who, of course, uh, I think we, most of our listeners know all about that. Yes, uh, they yes. They to use these things for very nefarious purposes. Yeah, the initiation uh, involves uh, you, you, you're, in a ca you're in a coffin. I think they lock you in a coffin. And, uh, uh, I mean, we don't know everything that goes on in there, but some of it sounds rather nefarious. So you're, you're saying that there is sort of a dark side to these mystery schools. Uh, it, it, there is because eventually it comes down to having a, an experience and uh, you have this incredible enlightening experience and it can make you very drunk. I mean, I've been through the same process myself without even realizing what I was getting into. 
uh, I've been learning the mysteries for years, slowly delving into it, experiencing it. I've I've had my experiences in the Great Pyramid too, without even requesting it or understanding that it was going to happen to me. And I can tell you, it can get to your head. I mean, you you do get a sense of self-empowerment. Can you tell me about that? What happened to you? What happened to you? Well, it's a very interesting story. Um, I work with a small group of people, uh, uh, one of many, many groups who go around the world uh, fixing sacred sites. Uh, it's our charge to uh, fix the things that people have messed up. <laughs> it's like we got like the garbage keepers of the spiritual world. Uh, we pick up spiritual garbage. And uh, we tend to go around the world quietly just tuning things up uh, by a process of uh, guided meditation, uh, channeling of light, uh, very old esoteric stuff. Uh, it's, uh, it all sounds very new age, but believe me, it's, uh, it's very, very important. And it is very profound once you've experienced it. And um, we were in Egypt in this particular occasion, and we, our group had not succeeded in getting uh, direct access and uh, private access to the Great Pyramid. There were some strange political undercurrents at the time. So about I think 16 people of our group had to stay behind and only four of us managed to get into the Great Pyramid and there was uh, the usual plethora of people running up and down the Grand Gallery there was kids shouting and of course the place is so perfectly fine-tuned that even the pin will uh, you know, reverberate throughout the entire building so it was very noisy and uh, we got up to the uh, King's Chamber and suddenly everybody vacated the entire building. You couldn't hear a thing. And we thought, well, let's seize on this opportunity and do the work that uh, we've been told to do. And, you know, we took some time for ourselves, focused. And uh, at that moment, the lights went out and we were in complete darkness inside this enormous building. And uh, we felt, you know, kind of kind of calm about it, uh, even though you're in the middle of this massive uh, building full of blocks all around you. And uh, we began to... Tone, which is the art of basically uh, tuning into a certain environment, finding out a certain note uh, that just resonates with the building. And we began to tune this. And as we began to get into the rhythm of it, in complete darkness, I opened my eyes and I can see people coming out of the rocks of the actual chamber. And it was not unnerving in any way. I mean, I felt so, it was one of the first times in my life I actually experienced this sense of unconditional love. Uh, it was a sort of a ring of people, very tall, uh, very slender, dressed in the most beautiful white satin. And uh, they just sort of surrounded us. And uh, I just looked at them with my eyes open in total darkness. And I just kept toning and uh, coming up with notes I've never been able to do before or since. And uh, after about 15, 20 minutes, it was hard to tell how long it was going for. They seemed to just retreat back into the stones, and um, we took turns uh, sitting inside the uh, the sarcophagus. And this is where it gets very strange. Uh, oh, just... Now it gets strange. <laughs> <laughs> For, before you proceed, Freddie, I have to ask you. I have to ask you this question because you had mentioned earlier that in 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 uh, this initiation, uh, as part of you know becoming the, an illumined one, there is uh, some. Uh, drug taking. W- was there any ayahuasca or any sort of equivalent involved in your episode? I have to ask. Uh, no, there wasn't. In fact, I find it actually, uh, for me, it actually imp- impedes the process. Even alcohol, I find it very hard to actually uh, in- overindulge because it really does stop your ability. And I think it's 
Um, and again, I'm talking from direct experience where I was taught that the more you go to these sacred spaces around the world and temples, uh, your body acts like blotting paper. You begin to soak up some of this energy. And if mm. you're doing it correctly, it keeps building up your resistance to much finer frequencies. And I, I, I'm out at a point now where I can actually see energy lines flowing around the landscape. I don't even need dowsing equipment anymore. I can see this stuff. Okay, I interrupted uh, you there. So, you, sorry, you're in the King's Chamber. Uh, it's it's uh, dark, it's quiet, and these uh, it's tall, and slender, robed <laughs> figures literally coming out of the rocks, surrounding yeah, you. They surrounded us, and then they went back into the stones again. Okay. And uh, uh, we took turns going into the lying in a sarcophagus for a few minutes because we figured we might push it, uh, yeah, push our luck. And uh, I'm six foot five. The next guy with me is about six foot. Then we have a gentleman who's five foot six and five foot two. So we're different heights. And uh, after about 20 minutes, the lights come on. A very excited Arab gentleman is screaming downstairs. Obviously, we weren't supposed to be doing all of this without paying huge amounts of backsheesh. So we quietly went downstairs, you know, gave him a little bit of backhander, and then walked out completely dazed. Our group is in the bus waiting for us, for trying to figure out what's been going on. And it's quite clear that four of us have had a very dramatic experience, and we weren't talking. And uh, I could see the other guys wanted to talk, and I said, well, did you see what I saw? And the other guy says, those guys that just came straight out of the stones, dressed in white, very tall, and we were completing each other's sentences. Hmm. Now, the chances of four grown-up men uh, coming up with this by coincidence, is very, very uh, impossible. So clearly we had a shared experience. We all saw this. And the funniest thing is that when we said, uh, when we talked about the experience in the, in the sarcophagus, every one of them said, that sarcophagus fit me exactly like a glove. It was exactly my length of my body and my width. Now, how do four people of different sizes fit perfectly inside the same uh, red granite box? That's what I want to know. And I can tell you to this day, Richard, that I don't know where I went in five minutes, but I'm still recalling all kinds of information. And in fact, I ended up uh, writing a lot of it into uh, my, my previous book, which is uh, The Divine Blueprint. And that's where a lot of that knowledge came through. And basically, that, that was what I was asking in the chamber. I said, I need to learn about this. I need to know how to use it. And how can I teach this to other people? And of course, eventually, it gets downloaded. And I just download it on paper. And there you go. So that's you know, a pretty good example of just how it works. It's fascinating. I don't need to tell you, obviously. I'm a I'm a Christian, uh, Orthodox Christian, and there is obviously uh, that part of this mystery school or this this initiation that is sort of tainted with the uh, the occult brush. You know that this is uh, the devil's work, uh, and that. Ah. So I mean, how do you? Uh, I mean, I don't know what your 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 upbringing was in terms of uh, religion, but let me ask it this way: We we know that Jesus spent some time in Egypt as a child. Uh, uh-huh. Is there a connection that maybe Christians aren't aware of between what the ancient Egyptians were trying to do and what Jesus was trying to do? Oh, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And I think, I mean, I was raised as a Catholic. I didn't have a choice. I was, I was uh, born in Portugal. And uh, we either were Catholics or basically were devil worshippers. <laughs> um, so I've actually come to, I mean, I, I hated Catholicism for a long time until I began to understand the origins of Christianity and how it preceded Jesus by a long, long way. 
and I began to uh, take a huge interest in John the Baptist, who is, uh, according to the Gnostic Gospels, the true Messiah, because there was two of them. There was the priestly Messiah and the kingly Messiah, and Jesus was supposed to take the uh, the, the part of the kingly Messiah, and John the Baptist's uh, lineage was, of course, the priestly Messiah, and they had all the power. Now, we know that, of course, John gets his head chopped off, uh, very unfortunate, and Jesus takes up the power. Now, this is where the Templars and the Ascends come into the picture, because when uh, the, uh, the scrolls were discovered under Temple Mount, and there's good evidence to suggest that the Templars did find the Essene scrolls, because they then undertook an obligation to reenact all of those uh, mystery schools that the Ascends had been doing, and that was validated in the scrolls that were found in 1947 in Qumran. Uh, clearly, the uh, early Christian church in Jerusalem uh, was also working uh, on the Ascend principle because the Nazarites or the Nazarenes and the Ascends were essentially uh, part and parcel of the same sect. So they were following some very old ritual traditions about raising the dead. And this is where the complication comes in with the Gnostic Gospels and the Orthodox Gospels because the Catholic Church, as we know, and this is very documented, uh, they basically uh, heavily edited these Gospels. So they were put, trying to put forward a certain idea of how things work. They tried to make uh, turn uh, Jesus into a god, uh, whereby all the Gnostic people were saying, well, he was just an ordinary man who was fulfilling a certain mission to show how the mysteries are enacted uh, in terms of sal uh, saving yourself and your soul while you're still alive. Um, even the Quran states that Jesus was never actually, never died on the cross. It was a figurative death. And the Ascends claim exactly the same thing in the Gnostic Gospels, that uh, the, uh, the whole idea of resurrection was a, a figurative resurrection. You are going from the dead and you're rising as a new soul while you're still alive because you've come into the understanding of how things work. And in fact, there's a wonderful, uh, actually there's two wonderful quotes from the Gnostic Gospel of Philip, which is now published which actually ridicules, uh, as they call them, ignorant Christians who take the resurrection literally. And he quoted it and he said, anyone who believes in resurrection as a literal truth is a fool. And only a few paragraphs later he says again, those who say they will die first and then rise are in error. They oh. must receive the resurrection while they live. All right, I've got to take a time out. We'll come back and pick up on that most contentious point. Freddie Silva here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Freddie Silva, the legacy of the ancient Egyptians and the art of raising the dead, spiritual alchemy. Uh, we were talking about the um, Jesus missing years, I suppose, in Egypt. And uh, uh, Freddie, uh, you and others uh, believe, and I guess the Gnostics believe, that uh, uh, what Jesus went through this mystery school learned this whole process and this was the message that he was trying to deliver i mean you know without getting into a obviously a sectarian battle here <laughs> um but but well, I, and that's the whole point richard though i mean you go back to your original point mm -hmm. uh, about the catholicism and orthodox christianity that's the whole point and i believe it actually validates the christian ethos of the fundamentals of christianity as being a very honest faith that the original gnostic christians 
totally understood that everything that was being said was figurative. It wasn't meant to be taken literally. And I think the Gospel of Philip actually illustrates that quite nicely. But the, the Egyptians uh, had a concept of an afterlife. They believed in an afterlife. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Uh, and also when the body, when you actually get to the point where you're, when you're on your deathbed, you should confess all your sins, you say what you regret, and you try to be honest with yourself so you don't carry this burden into your afterlife. But before that, uh, I mean, that was a literal death at the end of your life. I mean, we all have to accept that. But before that, there were also the uh, initiate schools, which, which taught you to, how to actually live while you were still in the physical body. And that was the whole difference between the people who were the... Uh, 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 the walking dead, as they call them, or the people who are actually enlightened uh, and the, uh, the ones who had risen from the dead. And this was to be experienced while you were still alive. So clearly, there was some kind of indoctrination into working out how you could actually live your, your life as a soul in a body and be totally self-aware. And I believe that's where the spat came in with the uh, later uh, Orthodox Christianity and the original sects of like the, the Ascends and the Gnostic Christians and the Cathars and the Templars. And the thing that links them all and why they were all exterminated by the Catholic Church is that the one, the one thread that links them all is that they all maintained that you had to basically find a way to become self-aware while you were still alive. And that gave you self-empowerment. And it didn't require a middleman, it didn't require a priest or a bishop to tell you how to communicate with God. Your communication was completely direct. And I believe, uh, you know, just by reading and taking a, you know, without taking sides, just reading the evidence that's, that's presented, uh, I think that's a very good case. And in, and in fact, it actually accentuates the ethos of Christianity, it actually gives me a, a good respect for it. I just believe that the way that it's been portrayed by the office of the Catholic Church is incorrect if you look back at the evidence that's portrayed throughout the centuries. Uh, so what was the Egyptian uh, the Egyptian viewpoint of the afterlife. Um, um, there was, um, you know, the soul is immortal. Where does it go? Uh, if you're good, where does it go? If you're bad, what happens? Oh, they didn't judge either way. Uh, they just reckoned that uh, you basically had to atone before you actually left. You didn't want to carry any way into the other world. I think their understanding, if you just sort of, again, just uh, sit back and try to view it from their viewpoint, is that they didn't see right or wrong. This, they just basically uh, said that you come into an imperfect world, a, perf- a world that is very material, very heavy, uh, and yet your soul is trapped in here. It doesn't understand what it's come here to do. So the, uh, to try and learn some techniques that allows you to escape uh, the gravity of the earth and escape your body for a few moments, even if it's just lucid dreaming, uh, and if you can come back with some understanding that there's a bigger life out there, then you can actually use these tools to live your life with correct action. And you get it wrong. Sometimes you'll get it right. You have a whole lifetime to learn this. But the trick was that when you die, you confess uh, all your sins and the things you got wrong. You declare the ones you got right so that when you go into the afterlife, your soul isn't heavy. It's not, the sort, it's not sort of bogged down by things that you should have done, shouldn't, done, shouldn't have done, regrets and things. The idea was to have the experience and to understand uh, the experience that separates right action from wrong action. There was not so much of a judgment from a uh, creative God. It was more a personal decision to uh, hold yourself accountable for your own actions. So in other words, you took total responsibility for being down here. And the difference was that some people were able to do it with better understanding and more clarity than others. And that's what separated the ones who are in the inside group as opposed to the ones who are just the walking dead. We've got about a minute here before we uh, step away again for a break. But what, what, what was waiting 
uh, on the other side for the for the departed soul? What I mean, did they have a concept of of, of heaven? Was it? Uh, did they return to a singularity? What was it? Um, it, the, a lot of the inscriptions in the Zavivna temples talk about uh, the process of uh, the soul becoming as a bright star, and uh, so that you basically return to the world of the gods. Uh, I believe that uh, it, it's sort of incomplete. I mean, we're sort of still picking up the uh, the pieces from uh, centuries of neglect and in, in the temples. So we, uh, our picture is very fragmentary. But if you start adding the Egyptian understanding to say the Tamil culture of southern India. Who is, uh, which is equally, if not even older than the Egyptian culture. I mean, they talk about temple cities that uh, uh, survived or didn't survive a major deluge, which is back in 9000 BC. And these things are going on to 15,000 BC, which are now under the ocean, and they've Listen, been found there. Got to take a quick so, time out, uh, Freddie. When we come back, we'll continue on that point, and then I want to find out about the pyramids. Why were they built? Why did they look the way they do? Why do we find pyramids now all over the world? Back with Freddie Silva as we discuss the legacy of the ancient Egyptians. Here on The Conspiracy Show, stay with us. Listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Freddie Silva is here, one of the world's great authorities on uh, metaphysics and one of the uh, most sought-after international speakers uh, in this regard. And uh, Freddie's website is www.invisibletemple.com. Uh, Freddie, these the, the pyramid. Uh, I mean, did these did these uh, initiations, these ceremonies, take place inside? the pyramid themselves or were there other temples that they used there are a number of temples and uh, the evidence seems to suggest that there was a, an initiation process whereby you began somewhere further down the Nile and uh, you'd spend uh, a goodly time down there learning and being indoctrinated into the secrets of the mysteries and uh, if you were clever enough and smart enough and you understood all of this they would basically uh, pack off your lunch pail up to the next temple and slowly, over the course of about 10 years, you'd slowly work your way up the Nile uh, to, from temple to temple. You'd learn, a, a, do a different experience, a different part of the knowledge at these temples. And the big prize, of course, was the uh, Giza Plateau. And uh, it seems from the descriptions uh, in the uh, pyramid text that the, uh, the big pyramid, of course, was the House of Osiris. And you only have to look at the house of the myth of Osiris to understand what that is all about. It's, it's an initiatory process of a guy who is murdered by 72 people. And it makes you wonder, why does it take 72 conspiracies to actually murder a guy? You know, there's, there's something about the number there, which is mm-hmm. very uh, re- revelatory. Um, and, uh, of course, he is the one who basically goes into the afterlife. He dies. His wife, Isis, uh, was not pregnant by him before he died. So the evil brother Set takes over the land, and of course the whole kingdom goes to to ruin. So basically, uh, Isis breathes life into the parts of uh, Osiris's body that were all chopped up. Uh, she fashions him a new phallus made of gold and uh, utters a sound to him, and he comes back to life. Uh, the symbol of which, of course, of his resurrection is the palm tree, which is the uh, the, the palm tree, of course, being of course the uh, the symbol of Jesus's entry on a donkey back into Jerusalem. 
so you can see the connection there between the two. There's a ritual connection here showing that uh, Jesus also has, seems to have undergone a kind of uh, metaphorical resurrection, so to speak. He was indoctrinated. So the House of Osiris, of course, the, uh, the, the main house was always associated with the Great Pyramid of, of Giza, which is, seems to be sort of a portal. And uh, by which time, if you're an initiate of the mysteries and you spend 10 years doing all this stuff, you'd learn how to work in and out of the body. You could take yourself out of the body at will. You were able to come back as a soul. And uh, there are people who've actually foolishly gone into the Great Pyramid to do out-of-body experiences without understanding what happens. And there have been deaths there. And this is why you'll find the pyramids get shut down for several months because the authorities just look at these people, these uh, what they call silly tourists, just basically doing silly things. Uh, it's a very, very important place. And if you get your, your work done correctly, you can have an extraordinary experience. Or a dangerous um, one, I guess, if you don't know what you're doing. Absolutely. And the, in fact, when I was writing the material and writing about my experience in the Great Pyramids for the, uh, for the Divine Blueprint, I actually looked around for anybody else who may have had a similar experience. And I had a book from the 1920s, or actually, I think it's before that, 1910, from a, uh, a guy called Paul Brunton, who, uh, as a, uh, an Englishman, he, he was disillusioned with the Victorian era of materialism. Can you believe that? I mean, <laughs> back in the Victorian era, they were disillusioned with materialism and industrial culture. And he went walkabout. Uh, he also had an experience in the Great Pyramid, and I hadn't read the book at, the, at this point. And he also saw exactly the same people I described in my uh, experience that came out of the, the stones. Uh, he had the advantage of having the pyramid to himself and throughout for the whole night. And he claims to have actually seen other chambers. Uh, and he was also told that certain chambers in the pyramid, which they said that most of the pyramid is actually hollow, uh, uh, these chambers are not meant for you. They're meant for other initiates who uh, have a different journey to you. Uh, so you can only go so far in this understanding because you still have a lot to learn. And then, bang, he's back in his body. And, uh, you know, the, he walks out pretty much like I did, completely mesmerized by his experience. Well, what, so so it, what were these entities? I mean, do you have a handle on that yet? I have a, uh, some good friends who are some very, very good trance mediums, and uh, I know they're good because the information that they give us under trance is uh, often not found in maps, yet we'll go and look for the coordinates of uh, temples that they give us, and, that, and these buildings are there. And uh, even the police and the, uh, the British military go and knock on her door to help, her, uh, to help them with their problems, and she has a, a near 100% record of solving out the police's problems. And uh, I asked her this information and uh, when she was on the trance one day, and she said, well, basically, it's just the energy of the entities of the priests that were there from many thousands of years. I mean, the, 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 the stone is the key, and the geometry, the way it's all laid out, is the key. Uh, if you look at uh, all the sacred sites around the world, and I've looked at a goodly amount of them, they seem to have chosen the, the stone very carefully. And if you look at the, uh, the type of stone that they chose, sometimes they would cart this, these rocks from 400 miles away, and you think, well, why? Well, they used a specific type of quartz in these rocks, and it's the kind of uh, quartz that we used to use back in the early uh, days of radio to actually conduct radio signals. Hmm. So quartz... Your crystal radio set, yeah. Exactly. The stone remembers, and your intent, as we now know, is an electromagnetic packet of information. And if you can carefully guide that information and that intent, the building will recall certain things. So it's as if the actual energy of the spirit body of the priest is still held within the walls of some of these places. And that's why people see ghosts sometimes. Uh, they're actually seeing the residual energy of the people who work there. So in a way, it's magic. But when you think about it from this particular point of view of what we know now know, 
uh, it's actually a, a very intense spiritual technology, and that's why the temples are built in a certain way, why each pyramid has a different slope angle, you may notice, and each one of them induces a different effect on the viewer, and that's precisely why. Um, the Bent Pyramid is one of my favorites. I mean, uh, orthodox archaeologists will tell you it's a mistake. Um, I think the body of evidence clearly shows that the Egyptians didn't make mistakes. And uh, there's a very clever gentleman, and I tried to remember his name earlier on today for another interview, and I still can't remember it. Um, he actually worked out that the slope angles of the, Great Pyram- of the Bent Pyramid, when you apply a, a cosine and a tangent to the values of those slopes, it means that the bottom part of the pyramid unfolds as a pentagram and the top as a hexagram. That's not Robert Boval, is it? Uh, it wasn't Robert Boval, no. no. It was somebody else. And I, 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 I doubt if I will remember mm. his name by the end of the interview. I've right. credited him in the book, for sure. Um, so this may not mean much to most people until you start looking at the idea that the temples follow the law of correspondence. They correspond to natural laws and the laws of the human body because they are supposed to be intermediary places for both. Well, if you look at human DNA and the crystalline structure that makes human DNA, we are a bunch of crystals held together by pentagrams and hexagrams repeating again and again. So the slopes of the pyramid, of the Ben Pyramid, literally reflect our, the geometry of our DNA. But you take it another stage further. If you look at the actual uh, geometry of the Earth, uh, or at least the analog of the geometry of the Earth, you will find that the, the numerical value of the, of the orbit of the pole, and in other words, the way that the pole rotates over its axis over one great Earth year, which covers 29,920 years, if you divide that by the relative nautical miles of the equator at 21,600 miles, you get a ratio of 5 to 6. So that is the numerical interpretation of the pentagram and the hexagram. So the Ben Pyramid essentially is a mirror image of the geometry of the Earth and the mirror image of the DNA in people, and that's why it affects people to that degree. You're looking in the mirror, and each pyramid will have a completely different slope angle. Each one of them has a different feel, and they'll do something very different to you. And yet we see pyramids now all over the world. They've been discovered in Yugoslavia. We've seen them in Central America. Is there an underlying connection? Oh, it seems to me that uh, we had a shared commonality of knowledge at some point in some very distant past. Uh, We have dolmens all around the world as well. I mean, uh, and according to orthodox archaeology, all of these cultures were never supposed to have even known each other, and yet we have dolmens in Korea, in China, in India, in in England, uh, everywhere. So obviously there was some pivotal point where all this information came from. And I keep coming back to the um, civilization that lived at one time in the south of India called the Tamil culture. And uh, if you look at a lot of their transcripts, which uh, talk about ancient academies that were um, uh, sunken under the sea by transgressions of the ocean, as they call it, uh, they talk about all these ancient academies that were ruled by creator gods. Uh, This was a time before builder gods which were the people who survived this catastrophic flood. Um, The creator gods were much bigger, much taller, and they compared them to gods because they were not just bigger people, but also they were intellectually large as well. And they claimed that they got all their information, that, that the information that survived these cataclysmic events in the earth came from them. And we don't know where they got theirs from, but it seems to me that there are certain points of commonality because they're shared all around the world in the way the temples are located, the way they're built, the way they're constructed, the types of materials. Uh, you can find the same relationship around the earth. And I believe there was a linguist as well who 
located some of the um, etymology of the uh, language of Easter Island, which is this tiny speck in the middle of the Pacific, thousands of miles from any landmass. And yet you look at their sacred um, words that they use for spirits, uh, for example, uh, the ahau, and that it's exactly the same word in ancient Egypt as well. Now, how did the ancient Egyptians and the Easter Islanders connect? I mean, these people are so far apart. So it shows that there obviously at some point was a point of commonality where this spiritual technology was open to everybody. Uh, the qu- big question is, of course, where is it and where did it come from? And why were the pyramids built? Uh, we, we know that they're not burial chambers. That's sort of long been um, Absolutely. dismissed. I've, I've uh, interviewed people who believe that they were uh, um, power, uh, um, power pumps, uh, giant batteries in, in one case. Someone had a theory that they were gigantic uh, capacitors, essentially. Why, why were they built? I think it's all of those and, and much more. Um, they were basically the ultimate uh, spiritual machines. I mean, they, uh, the sign of an advanced civilization uh, always lies in its ability to encode various levels of information in the simplest form possible. And you take something as a pyramid, which is a simple form, uh, and yet when you see it up close, uh, it takes you a while to actually find the adjectives to describe it. Um, it's, uh, if you, when you start taking the building apart, you see that A, the measurements of the base and the slope, everything about it, all the numerical values, you can calculate all the Earth's proportions with that just by measuring the building. Uh, if you are a dowser or you work with Earth energies, you'll see how all of these sacred sites all are aligned exactly at the crossing lines of the Earth's telluric currents, uh, what some people call the serpent lines or the fairy paths. Uh, we now have magnetometers to show that uh, that is actually uh, true. Uh, of course, the magnetometers being $40,000 more expensive than your copper rods. Hmm. Uh, I prefer copper rods, uh, but you'll get the same result. Uh, they also uh, have certain geometries which will influence the uh, spatial values of the uh, air inside them, which means that when you put your body in these environments, you will feel very, very different. And the, uh, the Russians, uh, around about the time when the Berlin Wall came down, um, the KGB had a massive file on the esoteric practices. They actually looked at this information and they worked out that uh, what if it's true that if you stick a, a, a person in a building of a certain shape, it will actually have an effect on you. Well, back in the early 70s here in in Toronto, the home of the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, there was a a coach by the name of Red Kelly and uh, trying to get his team into the playoffs and he was touting pyramid power and everyone was walking around in Toronto with with pyramids on their heads. So, uh, Not a good idea. (laughs) No, in fact, uh, the Leafs didn't make the playoffs. We never the blades. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, Freddie, we, uh, sadly, we are out of time. Uh, We've obviously just scratched the surface. Very quickly, where where can people go to, uh, to see this presentation? I know you did an online presentation uh, today. Where else can they go to see it? Um, you'd have to go to the uh, the Prophets Conferences website or the Great Mystery website, which is link on my uh, on my tour page, on my lectures page, which is at uh, invisibletemple.com. And uh, if you want to read some of what I've actually done on there on here, uh, it's split between two books: uh, one's the Divine Blueprint, and one's the new book on the uh, Templars called First Templar Nation. And that gets more into the rising of the dead and the connections to John the Baptist. So. Plenty there for everybody for a long time. Freddie, always a pleasure. Be always on the a safe pleasure, Richard. All right, thank you, Freddie.